0: Good morning. It is my pleasure to worship with you. My name is Becky Memelar. I have worshiped with you before. It's been a while. I suspect that if you heard the Christmas story this season, you heard it from the Gospel of Luke. You might have heard Mary's song, or the Magnificat. You might have heard, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Or, you might have heard, and it came to pass, In those days, There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. and there were shepherds watching their sheep and there were angels singing. A babe lying in a manger. Oh, isn't this a beautiful story? I love it when it's read on Christmas Eve and the lights are lowered. I love it when we sing the great hymns of the church that accompany this narrative. It's lovely. But today I want to do a little something different. I want us to turn the lights up, and we did get the lights up. I want us to look beneath the sepia tone lens that we usually use. I want us to look beyond the crush or the nativity scene that we, you, that we so carefully display. I want us to look for the humanity in the story. And I think if we do, we'll have a better understanding of the divinity as well. I want us to hear Joseph's story. Did you notice when Susie read the story, the differences? Where is Mary's soul magnifying the Lord? Where's the decree from Caesar Augustus? Where are the shepherds watching their sheep or the flocks by night? A babe lying in a manger. Anything? Instead, it's as if it were a different story. Did you feel the anxiety in the story? Now, let me reiterate, just in case you didn't know this, a betrothal in antiquity would have been between a a girl and a man And the girl would have been about 12 or 13, and it would have lasted about two years. Often, the prospective bridegroom paid a bride price. So this was a financial or a political agreement, and it would have been a gain for her family. This wasn't a love match. Purity or virginity was a part of the bargain. So Joseph, it was supposed, but we don't know for sure, was an older man, but because he would have had enough money to arrange this. And as per the custom, they entered into this contractual agreement between the groom and the bride's family. But somehow, some way, both families know that Mary is pregnant. Can you imagine the stress? Now, unplanned teen pregnancies in our day still create a little stress, but not nearly the stress that they would have created in antiquity. Mary was a peasant girl. She was a part of a contract. Not only was Mary's honor at stake. Her family's honor was at stake. This was money. Now, Matthew tells us that Joseph is a righteous man. Now, we think of righteous as goodness, but that's not what they're talking about. In this t- context, it meant that Joseph adhered to Jewish law, that he was strict about this. It meant that he followed it to the letter of the law. And he could have had Mary publicly disgraced. Literally, he could have had her stoned. Instead, he was going to have her quietly released. Now, in a small town, quietly released Think about that. Probably still wasn't going to be a good thing for her. But did you feel the rise of the stress in the story? Think about this more than the sepia tones that we hear the story in Luke. Think about this from a human perspective. Think about the stress of the story. Pregnancy, betrayal, financial loss, future plans. Think about Joseph. Children meant everything in antiquity, it was all gone for him. A divorce that was disgraceful. There's real tension in this story. Now Joseph goes to sleep and he's tossing and he's turning and he finally goes to sleep and an angel appears to him in a dream. And the angel tells him to take Mary, not to be afraid, take her as your wife, to name him Jesus because he will save his people. And when Joseph woke up, he did an unrighteous thing. He probably did the most unrighteous thing he had ever done. Instead of following the law, he followed the voice of an angel. Joseph took Mary as his wife without fear. And he named the child. That's just a little sentence. He named the child. Naming Jesus meant everything. It meant he assumed paternity. There weren't DNA tests back then. When he named Jesus, it meant he was the legal father. And if I had had Susie read one verse further up, we would have gotten into the baguettes, and that would you would have noticed that Jesus' lineage went, was traced in Matthew back through Joseph. And Joseph, Jesus' Davidic lineage is traced through Joseph, even though Matthew tells us Joseph is not his biological father. It makes no difference. He is his legal father. Jesus becomes his heir. The scandal is gone within the community. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about becoming the stepfather to Jesus. Think about that responsibility. My own husband is a stepfather. We've been married nearly 29 years, and I think he's probably one of the best ones around. My daughter's also a stepmother, and they, two of my daughters have a stepmother. And I know firsthand that step-parenting is a thankless job. You get all the responsibility, often a lot of the financial responsibility, very little say over the discipline. Any other step parents in the room? Very little say over the discipline. Sometimes major decisions are made and your input isn't recognized. Often, no matter what you say or do, you're seen as the villain. Even if you pour out your heart and soul into the task. But think about Joseph. Think about being the stepfather to Jesus. Think about that task. Nowhere in any of the... Uh, In Luke or Matthew, does it mention that there was a midwife to deliver Jesus? So Joseph's calloused hands would have been the hands that delivered Jesus. They would have been the hands that first touched Jesus. They would have been the hands that brought him to Mary's breast. They would have been the eyes that he first peered into. We know that Joseph was a righteous man. It meant that he followed Jewish law. It would have been his responsibility to teach Jesus every single day. He would have had to teach him the law every day. It would have meant that he would have had to teach him the stories of Judaism. We know that when Jesus went into the temple when he was 13, he dazzled the teachers. Well, how did he get that knowledge? Okay, we can get that he was probably divinely inspired and that he was gifted, but nowhere does it say, boom, that, Jesus, uh, that God dropped that knowledge down from heaven. Somebody taught him. That would have been Joseph or Joseph saw to his education. Joseph's hands picked him up and brushed him off when he fell down. It was his shoulder that he cried upon. We think of Jesus as a Jewish carpenter. It was because Joseph was a carpenter. It was his calloused hands that taught him this trade. He taught him to saw and to plane, to hammer and to nail. He taught him all that he knew. Joseph gave Jesus a birthright, legal status, lineage. He kept his mother from being disgraced and stoned. Joseph cared for Jesus, taught him as much as he could about Judaism, carpentry, and becoming a man. Yet, Joseph only gets a few mentions in Scripture. And I say once again, step-parenting is a thankless job. Now, I want to make just a couple other points before I finish. Did you notice that Jesus was born into a blended family? Did you notice that? When people talk about um Traditional family values I'd love to point out that my Jesus, the Jesus who came to save his people, was born into a blended family. He had a stepfather and step siblings. And I just want to point out all families are non-traditional. They're difficult, even if they're biological. My family of origin is big. I'm one of seven children. We're all married. We have 24 children. I think, and I lose count sometimes, my mom now has 52 great-grandchildren. I lost count, but I think when we all get together, there are over 100 of us. People think that big families are sort of like the Waltons. Now, I'm going to tell you a a secret about big families, but I'm only going to tell you if you promise not to tell. Okay, do I get your, will you promise not to tell anybody? Okay, this is the truth about big families. They are big. We are not all close. We do not get together all all the time. We do not say, good night, John boy. It is impossible for us to be together because how do you get 52 little children together? I mean, tell me, it's a zoo. It is a zoo to have 50 toddlers running around. It's like a daycare nightmare. Intimate gatherings are an impossibility. I love them. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But my point is, God sent Jesus into a family intentionally. Jesus wasn't sent into an incorpor- uh, into a corporation. Jesus wasn't sprung from rocks or hatched from eggs, but into the midst of a family, to an earthly father who was afraid to take him as his own, but was courageous enough to follow the voice of God, to a mother who was courageous enough and who pondered everything he did. But it was a messy family. You know, just like our own, just like ours. Which brings me to my final point, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is my favorite part of the story because it means God is with us or a with us God. Or as one of the scholars put it, God has something in common with us. In our crazy, mixed-up lives, in our crazy, mixed-up world, In our crazy, mixed-up families, God has something in common with us. When I was in divinity school, one of my required classes was the art of ministry. One One of my favorite classmates was fond of saying it was neither art nor ministry. One of the questions we were asked weekly was, where is God in the midst of all of this? This can be a maddening question. I suspect it was for Joseph, too. It was easier for him to see God at at Jesus' birth than it was when he found out that Mary was pregnant. And perhaps that's true for us, too. Emmanuel is with us. God is with us. God has something in common with us. It's just harder for us to see when we are in the midst of tragedy. We can imagine Joseph struggled to find God in the midst of the turmoil of emotions, of pregnancy and betrayal and financial loss, when his future plans seemed like they were all gone or a divorce. It wasn't until the angel came to him and took action and he took action, or maybe even until he held the baby Jesus, that he truly felt Emmanuel, or God was with him. I don't know what brought you to Deep River today. I don't know if you you come every Sunday, or you wandered in here, or you came out of obligation, or you felt called here today. I do know that life is often messy. Relationships are often messy and complex. Sometimes we're asked to do thankless tasks, and we barely get honorable mentions Sometimes we never see the results of what we're asked to do. Sometimes it's hard to feel that God is with us in the midst of our messy lives. Sometimes it's hard to see the God of Jesus that lived in the sepia tones of long ago but this is what I want you to know. If I put you to sleep during all of this, wake up for this. This is what I want you to know. No matter how complex your life is today, no matter what challenge you are facing, whether it's health, broken relationship, wealth, no matter what you are facing today, God is with you. You may not feel it in the midst of this tragedy. You may not feel it in the midst of the depression or the fog or whatever. But Just look up. Look up to the eyes or the arms or the community that surrounds you And you will find that God is there. God still has something in common with us. And that is the point of it all. Emmanuel. Amen.